Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. In this episode, I speak with Ayana Lewis, a librarian, a Montessorian, and a lifelong learner. Ayana went to Montessori school as a child from ages 3 to 11, and today she is a children's house guide in Denver, Colorado. Ayana and I met during our Montessori teacher training at the Maria Montessori Institute in London. And in addition to her AMI diploma, Ayana also has two master's degrees, one in reading, writing, and literature, and one in library sciences. Before she became a Montessori guide, she worked as a school librarian for 14 years. In this conversation, Ayana and I chat about her path to becoming a Montessori guide and how she uses her training in both literacy and library sciences in her children's house classroom. We talk about her love of books and how it began, as well as how she got started working in education. She also shares her best tips for supporting children's literacy and love of reading at home. A few notes about our conversation. You'll hear us talk about AMI, which stands for Association Montessori Internationale, the organization which conducted our teacher training program that was founded by Maria Montessori and her son Mario in 1929. You'll also hear us talk about the Children's House, which is a mixed age class of two and a half to six year olds in a Montessori school. We sometimes use the word guide instead of teacher, which is a commonly used term in the Montessori world coming from the idea that the adult's role is to guide children through activities in the classroom and in their development. I think that's all you need to know for now. Let's get into my conversation with Ayana. Hi, Ayana. Welcome Hi. to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yay! So glad to be here, Gabrielle. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited to chat with you about education and libraries and everything in between. Um, so to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you're doing these days. Okay, well, I consider myself a lifelong learner. I am currently working as a two and a half to six or three to six guide in a Montessori school in Denver. And I'm just a librarian for life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I live and work in Denver and have lived in Colorado for the past three years. And uh, I just am enjoying my part of the journey right now. Nice. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all of that, your whole journey, but first, um, tell me about how your love of books began. Did you love reading as a child? Did you always love books? I think more than just books, the whole experience of reading, I have memories of Sunday morning and my parents, especially my dad flipping through the newspaper then maybe watching a little bit of TV and going for a walk later. Um, our, ch our church family growing up 
was this little church called Zion Missionary Baptist Church, 1601 East Laurel in Springfield, <laughs> Illinois. And we would go. And as a child, like even I would say three or four, especially Christmas and Easter, you would learn, you would memorize a small verse and say it and look cute and stand up in front of the church and have everybody taking pictures of you. And it was just like, oh, these words are really nice. But my mother takes a book with her everywhere she goes. She would go to the toilet and bring a book and close <laughs> the door. She would go to the grocery store and there'd be one in the cart. She would take us to the park and she would be sitting. So her example probably was probably the biggest, you know, influence on, mm. on my love of books and my understanding of words power in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I always, yeah. I always tell parents, if you want your child to love reading, they have to see you reading. They have too. to see it. Yeah. 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 Um, so you have several master's degrees and an AMI diploma, which we know is the work of a master's degree. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me about your first master's degree in reading, yeah. writing, and literacy, and what made you decide to go for that first master's? Right. So when I went through school, I, I graduated high school at age 17, and I got a science scholarship at the University of Denver. And um, so I became a biology major, I think, because of my background, loving learning and, and Montessori in the past, but also having a favorite high school biology teacher. Honestly, I think I just majored in what I enjoyed in high school. Um, and at the end of, the, of that time, I found myself thinking about what I really enjoyed. I enjoyed tutoring, volunteering in college at university, and I pursued teaching um, just in the regular setting and with elementary age children because of that tutoring experience. And then just because I needed to work and pay back a few loans, I had scholarship, but I had a few loans. And so as I was working, um, at that time, I was running into children that were really struggling with phonemic awareness, with like even left-right orientation with reading, just some basics that really never occurred to me. Um, and so it was getting to the point where I'm like, I need to know more things. And so I asked one of my professors back um, at university and they mentioned that there is a center for literacy in Chicago at the University of Illinois. And um, the director, Timothy Shanahan, was really instrumental in um, setting up reading clinics all over the city and in working with other um, cities and, and organizations to help children read. And so I just went, I applied and I went to grad school and it was about a year program, maybe a year and a half that I finished the master's. And it was pretty intense. We, I had right away in that program, I would be in a class and then have practicums. Um, I was right away, like in a classroom in first grade in Chicago, you know, and sometimes I was filming while a teacher was working with children mm. and then debriefing about what we saw or, you know, what strategies to work with that child. One of the 
biggest like lectures that we had was from a man named Tim, Tim Rosinski. And he was the person that kind of opened up this reader's theater aspect, especially for older children to help them with fluency. And, and I used it later on in life and my library life, but basically he was like, you can take anything, a speech. He did the Emancipation Proclamation. He did, uh, you know, other like things that you would see maybe for high school students, broke it down into parts and had children like read that speech or parts as, you know, building fluency. And children who really struggled were so motivated to be part of the reader's wow. theater script. And their fluency just would skyrocket and they would start reading and practicing and getting the cadence of the language and understanding the, the power of the words behind what they were saying. And then Tim Rosinski is like, you can take any children's book and make a reader's theater script out of it. And I did it <laughs> later um, in my library life. So that was my first oh, master's. Wow. I was prepared to come back to Colorado. I did this work in Chicago. Um, but someone stopped me and knocked me on the door and said, would you apply to teach second grade on the West side in a, a Chicago public school? When the principal interviewed me, um, she said, I need you to be the librarian and just sign a waiver and just do it because of all of the things that you're saying about your reading masters and where you're coming from. We really need that. Our librarian is uh, retiring. Sign a waiver. We'll help you get started and get all the required courses so you're okay. And that was my journey to my next master's, which took some years. It took wow. about four or five years because uh, I did it in pieces. I took a class here. I went to another university. And then I decided, oh, I want to go for the whole master's. You know, wow. I don't want to just do the required courses for the job. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up back at the University of Illinois, but with a remote program, which was partly online back then, not even with COVID <laughs> and partly in person. And we had a every semester we had to go to, to the campus of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and get our hands on actual materials and be in the rooms with our other classmates and professors and work out whatever projects we were working on. So those were great experiences and I found something I truly adore. Yeah. And it's not just reading, it's helping. I, I think I like the, the, um, advisory part of, of librarianship, which is helping people find information, whether it's navigating forms. There was a class that we had in my reading or in my um, uh, library science uh, master's called government documents. Oh. And the whole semester course was just how to navigate the government documents, how to find what you need from our federal government. Well, I found myself helping parents, helping myself, helping family members, and having a better understanding of what to do. And then there were other classes like children's literature that brought in that love of the beautiful age that we're in mm -hmm. now, where so many wonderful artists are partnering with um, Arthur's and creating amazing books. Yeah. Picture books, young adult fiction books, just really writ well-written stories that 
I had a few when I was little, but they it's exploded. I'm so glad for children now because they have so much yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you work as a librarian? 14 years in wow. Chicago. Um, and mostly really two schools, one on the West side and one on the Northwest side. And in both of those situations in those schools, the majority, I would say at least 50% of the children, if not more, would have been at considered at poverty level um, and had some, you know, housing challenges and other. The second school on the Northwest side was almost a first point of immigration for many um, families from Central America and Mexico and other immigrant families. Um, so we had a lot of children that were coming to us with English being their second language. So that was great. It was such a large school at first. I was uh, the librarian assigned to the pre-K to fifth grade building, which had over a thousand students in it just alone. And then the middle school next door had, I don't know, six, 700 children. So there were just a lot, you know, there were a lot of children at that time when I started. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what are some of your absolute all-time favorite children's books? Uh, I I was actually thinking, I love Eric Carle's very hungry caterpillar. Uh, I I do. do I do. It, you know, there are lots of picture books that have my heart, new ones. Um, I like Mo Willems, all of, all of his elephant and piggy and all of, all of those. Um, and, um, does he also do Nuffle Bunny? I think he also did Nuffle Bunny. Yeah, um, and Don't Wolves. Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. I like yes, that <laughs> yes. So that series. But Eric Carl's That Pattern with the, the Very Hungry Caterpillar, mm. The Grouchy Ladybug is good too, but it's just... Oh, I don't know if I know that one. The Grouchy Ladybug is good. And, you know, and he has some other ones in a house for hermit crab and, you know, you can yeah. just play around with it. But that one, it has the predictable... A language you can build the comprehension as well, and it's just so beautiful. So yeah, that's one of my favorite. We did um, when I was in preschool, we did a play of the very hungry caterpillar, and I was the pickle. It's <laughs> 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 my oh, only <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's um, cute. It was yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Um. So tell me how you first found out about the Montessori method. So now you see so worked in library sciences for, or as a librarian for 14 years. Yes. And then you transitioned into Montessori. So how did you first find out about Montessori? I was thinking about my Montessori journey and it has to have happened before I was born. My mom um, and dad met in college and they went to the Illinois Institute of Technology and they were both math and computer geeks and engineering geeks. Uh, they found each other and, and they were early in their marriage. My mom decided to become a math teacher um, and she was doing her student teaching at a large school in Chicagoland. And she asked the teachers, where do you have your children in school, young or old? And many of them said Montessori. And that was her first knowing or inkling of it. She kept it in the memory bank. And then a few years later had me, I'm the first child of four. And uh, when they moved to a smaller town, 
and a new uh, Montessori school was renting space and a Methodist church. She looked them up and came and looked and, and, and said, this is sounds great. And so I started around age three, I might've been two and a half. Um, so my journey began because I was a, a Montessori child who attended Montessori school from ages three, roughly to age 11. And then I had other experiences. I had parochial experience, public high school experience, uh, private university experience. And all along the way, I think I just wanted to do whatever I enjoyed in life. Um, but when I had that moment of the reading crisis where I was experiencing things, I had that thought, I, maybe I would, would like to do training in this and I decided to go and do the reading masters, but I had looked into a little bit in the back of my mind, um, some training programs for Montessori, because I thought, you know, I loved those sandpaper sounds and I loved reading these children that I'm encountering, maybe they could benefit from something like that, but it kind of went, it was a passing thought and I didn't stay with it. Um, and then I was a librarian for 14 years and had, uh, budgetary cuts, had the library program cut at the school, and I was offered a teaching position, which was a little different, um, and I did not accept that, but ended up kind of looking for other things that I enjoyed doing. Uh, so I started volunteering. I was working and doing different things. I was still volunteering in libraries, and I volunteered at a Montessori school in, in their library, and wow. that started me thinking about well, I was peeking in the classroom thinking, huh, maybe I would enjoy training in this. And that led me to, you know, the training program in London and meeting you and, yeah. and many other wonderful people. But it really was kind of an afterthought. Um, I also have, so I was an elementary library, uh, uh, a child, and we did a, a field trip to our local main branch in that small town that I grew up in, in Springfield. And I will never forget the, the librarian showed us, this is before the internet. This is before <laughs> iPhones and any technology. And she showed us the card catalog. And then there were these old Apple computers that showed you something else. But I will never forget learning how to find what I needed and having this independence, because myself and other children, we had things that we wanted to learn about. I've forgotten what project I came to the library for, but I was so empowered because someone showed me how to use a system that I could do and use independently. And I never forgot that. And then I ironically, I thought about when did I think about maybe I would want to be a librarian? Never. It just happened. But all those years ago, I was so like inspired and, and found this beautiful thing and being able to access the card catalog as a child. Yeah. And, and, and then seeing adults doing the same thing blew my mind. Oh my gosh, they're doing it too. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of Montessori is, is just, it's amazing in that this woman from, from another continent, another time in history, really saw and respected what is happening in the child. 
and yeah. Uh, yeah. So I I was a beneficiary of that. So I yeah, and then I think like even in high school, I would look for libraries. Like I would study with my friends or read on the front steps and, you know, and go to lunch, you know, with friends. But I was always trying to be in the library or near a bookshop and just be just like that's where I wanted to be, you know. Yeah. Do you remember what your transition was like from Montessori school to traditional education or parochial education? Um, That's a question I get a lot from parents. I think a lot of Montessori teachers who work in preschool and um, early elementary get that question a lot. You know, my child's going to go to a you know traditional middle school. What is that going to be like for them if they've been in Montessori for years? Right, right. So I pretty much went up to what would be sixth grade, and so I started seventh grade in a parochial system. I had to go from free choice of clothing and you know work working on the floor, working at a table and choosing my work and, and designing my own work plan. So as an elementary child, I do remember like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday boxes and my, and writing down all the things that I wanted to do and checking in with my guides about lessons. And so it was a little different to go to uniforms and to Mm. sitting in desks and then it was a middle school that had a little bell system. So I would be an hour in math and then go to another teacher for reading and then go to another teacher for art and go to another teacher for, you know, PE. Whereas I had the same guides or teachers for three or four years, they were it, <laughs> you know, so that was yeah. different. Um, but I adjusted well, I think. It was kind of cool, especially grammar. I'll never forget. Like they had this workbook and I remember diagramming sentences when I was little of, you know, adjective, adverb, verbs, you know, and it was just so easy. Everything was so easy. Like, and I found myself finishing early on tests and reading. (laughs) (laughs) Always having a book to read, Um, you know, as, and especially seventh and eighth grade, it was a little hard socially, but I think anytime you put children out of that kind of warm cocoon of elementary age, and then, you know, you've got puberty, you've got change anyway, it would have been challenging no matter what, you know, mm-hmm. for seventh and eighth grade years. But I did team sports, I did volleyball. I mean, I had growing pains of, you know, meeting mean girls and, (laughs) and and honestly, the racism uh, was a big factor in me not returning for high school in that parochial setting. So it was great for the main, it was good because it was smaller. I was always in a smaller classroom. Maybe there were no more than 20 children, 24 children at any one time. To then go to a class that may have been about the same size, even if I had all these teachers and all the change, it was still about the same size. And then to go to a public high school, which was huge. So Mm -hmm. it was a kind of a gradual progression that I think benefited me. And Mm -hmm. and then when I got to high school, you know, my world really opened up and I could, you know, take the foreign language that I'm still trying to learn French and, um, and meet a, a broader range of people and a a more diverse, you know, experience. Uh, 
Yeah. But yeah, my transition, it was, I, if I had not had reading, maybe I would have been one of those attention getters or children who get kind of in trouble with the teacher because I, it was really easy because I had done a lot of that stuff in Montessori. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't as challenging. Um, Yeah. I, I do hear that a lot. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to do Montessori training in London? So I uh, asked advice of a lot of people I trusted, including the primary guide that I had as a child, as a three-year-old. And oh, wow. um, she, she recommended a, a local program because she wanted to kind of, you know, keep me there. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, um, I really gravitated toward AMI and AMI for primary training, because I felt like I would just really have a clear picture of how to start in this, what the materials purposes are. And and so I just kind of gravitated toward AMI. And then I narrowed it down to two programs. One was in the US and one was in London. Actually, I had thought about going to Bergamo. But the Mm. thought of the fact that some of the children would be have Italian as their first language. And I would not, I just, I could not reconcile that and possibly, you know, introducing sandpaper sounds. Like even if I'm the English language person who that's my first language, I just, I wanted to connect with the people and the children in my training. And so Mm -hmm. that was a, uh, it was kind of that. And then I never had a chance to do study abroad and all of my masters yeah. and all of my undergraduate, you know, experiences. And so I said, well, it's London. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was a wonderful year. Do you remember? I, I mentioned this on my first podcast episode with Thais, who is also in our program, that it was a really funny experience for me. Um, teaching the sandpaper letters in practice teaching in London, because most of the sounds are the same, but I had to say the uh, phonograms are, er, and or with a British accent. So I had yes. to say, oh, or, uh, do, you, do you remember doing that? <laughs> I remember switching up. So we were very fortunate in our program. I, after talking with many people in many programs, very fortunate in our practice teaching setup um, to be invited to three different schools. And Mm -hmm. so the first school, um, I hadn't gotten to the point where I was even giving lessons in, in language, but I had started to adopt a little bit of a British accent to adjust Yeah, in that first school. And by the second school, I had gotten better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and by the third school, I could do it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, it, and it, it did take practice and I had to think about it and I had yeah. to constantly look back at my key, you know, mm-hmm. of sounds and, and really yeah. think about it. And it, and it gave me such an admiration and respect for the work that children are doing yeah. and acqui- ac- you know, acquiring language and accessing that. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, they are doing this. I did yeah. this. And now I'm having to do it again. 
but consciously, right? Such an amazing, I mean, uh, one of the things that I love most about teaching this age group is the insight into the human being learning to read that you get to experience that Mm -hmm. every year with new children. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and seeing that absorbent mind and seeing those human tendencies at work in Mm -hmm. real time is just amazing and and wonderful, truly an honor and a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I did find myself saying, get the rubbish bin (laughs) 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 or tidy up, tidy up, tidy up, you know, and I would, I adopted some of those isms yeah just by being there yeah yeah um so tell me about your work as a Montessori guide since then um have you worked with any um bilingual children or children who are learning English in your classrooms I have currently I would say in my current situation most families have English as their first language but are exposing their child to either Spanish or another language that they would like them to learn, though they mm-hmm. aren't fluent. But in my uh, past experience, every fam- every classroom has had at least a couple of families where English is the second language. And um, when I first came back after training, I did not work directly in a classroom. I worked in the office and in another capacity, but I would guest star and meet up with, you know, different families. And I Remember one, I think it was Hindi, they were from India, um, and just the perfect like switching of this four-year-old between English and his language, his home language, and just conversing, you know, outside after school, and I just was blown away. It's so beautiful. Um, In my work as a librarian and just in general, I always... And even before, maybe this was Montessori and just wanting to have that diversity of thought, I would seek out either bilingual or other language books just to see what the language looked like. Mm. And so it was fascinating to open up a book and see Japanese and see the the words written and pictures and or, you know, other languages. And so um, it's pretty natural for me to look for for that in my world. In my role now, um, probably Spanish and English is what uh, I have found within the resources at my current school, but I, it's, it's so easy now, especially with the internet to look up and find print um, to access. And even uh, in my library work, the International Digital Children's Library has a mission, which is to provide home language print Um, in digital form in ways that can be accessed without all of the bells and the whistles and the latest operating systems with low system requirements. So anyone in any country is called called the International Digital Children's Library. Look it up and you can flip through and you can look and find Persian. You can find, you know, any, just about any written language and a children's book with illustrations in that language. Wow. And some are bilingual and some are not. Um, but, you know, having access to that, I think is pretty important. Um, yeah. The age group that I work with, uh, we don't really expose them to technology. We really do want them to have the real and the tangible and have, be established in the natural world um, before 
you know, delving into technology and or other things. But um, yeah, I, I tell people about that all the time. And just, you know, go into a bookstore and look at the other languages, you know, within, within that book. You may not know, you know, that you want to see that until you see it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so tell me, how do you use, if at all, how do you use the skills from your reading, writing, and literacy degree in your children's house classroom? In finding actual books that meet that developmental need, I think I got a lot from both the library program and the literacy program because within the literacy program, my I think my first class, I was filming in a first grade classroom within the first two weeks of the, of the master's program. And then I got a chance to just see, oh, this is what they're reading. The, these are the types of predictable texts that are needed or the small, easy readers and what that should look like, accompanied with that Montessori uh, kind of focus of providing a real representation of the world. And mm -hmm. so if I get a book, I would love it to have live photographs of fish and all that nonfiction, which you know we learned about in my library training, but definitely I'm looking for things that are authentic and real in print to present to young children. Yes, rich fiction is great. And and read aloud friction can never, you can never go wrong with that. But I think that just having that background and knowing, oh, these publishers really have worked hard to provide print at various stages of a child's reading development. And they have glossaries and tables of content, no matter how small the book is. Um, and, and all of these other tools that help with their understanding of the world, their fluency, their, their grasp of uh, concepts, you know, as they go on, because, you know, why not provide that as young as possible? So, yeah, yeah. So I have that kind of eye, I've got that librarian hat and looking for that content um, or, or what I'm looking for in the fiction. Um, I forgot to mention a book. There's a, play, a book called Going Someplace Special. I think the author is Patricia McKissick, but I can't, don't quote me. And that's <laughs> a book that takes someone through, I think it would have been 1968 or seven. And at the, at, at, during some of the civil rights protests, but um, it was basically based on um, a Nashville librarian and her, you know, or, and or the public library's non-segregation stance where they did not have segregation at the public library. So this child goes through all these adventures and she has some painful moments. She has some funny moments, but she finally makes it to that someplace special, which is the library. And Aww. that's one of my favorite books uh, that I've left at every school I've worked in. <laughs> and I need yeah. to buy another copy for me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know that one. I'll have to read yeah, that. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. It's a, it's a nice picture book as well. Yeah. Um, so what are some strategies that parents can use at home to support children who are struggling to read? Read to them and provide the oral language experience. I, I have uh, 
memories of sitting around, especially with folks like grandma and grandpa and uncles and, and having just time where they sit and tell stories and, and, and give that one-on-one time. So number one is spending time actually talking with your child, actually, yeah, reading to, you cannot, I cannot encourage people to do that enough. And singing and singing those rhyming songs and those songs you used to sing and learning some new ones and, you know, um, and learning songs with multiple verses. One of the beauties of growing up in Zion Missionary Baptist Church was that we had these, these songs and those hymn books. They had them in England, too, when I went to churches with three and four stanzas. And that's mm. building muscle memory. And that's also building those brain pathways and, and, and the repetition of having that tune. Music is so powerful and, and part, partnering with the words to build um, the language and, and hearing the pattern of language and the flow of language. So those are some simple things. Yes, you can take sounds and as you're walking, oh, I see a cat and emphasizing the initial sound or the end sound. Why not? We do that in, in our uh, work with the children in the children's house. Um, so parents can do that as well, but I'd say really spend time talking with your children, singing with your children, telling those stories and creating an environment of oral language richness within the home. Yeah. 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 Um, so what do you love most about Montessori? You have known about Montessori since you were very small, but as a guide, what do you love most about Montessori? What keeps you in the Montessori world these days? Oh, the joy you see on the child's face when they say, I did it. And you hear it all the time, you know, from a two and a half year old that finally put on their sock. <laughs> or finally figured out how to put the pool in the zip and and or they they had an aha moment with the science exploration or all of those things I think just make me want to do what I'm doing every day Uh, along with just really respecting and being able to see their process so it, it is truly a gift it really is yeah yeah um, so we've talked a lot about Montessori and reading, and now let's talk a little bit about bilingualism. I know you have some bilingual relatives you wanted to. I do. I do. I have a bilingual sister, but she started her second language journey a little bit later, but had a, a smidgen of exposure, um, in, in the younger years in the first plane of development. And um, then I have a sister-in-law. She, uh, her family immigrated from Laos when she was three and she started right away uh, seamlessly learning English at the same time speaking the home language Lao at home. And she said that it was, she doesn't have a memory of struggling. It was just, I talk in Lao at home with my family and I speak in English at school and uh, it's beautiful to see she is such a reader she's such a reader now she's always reading uh, 
And I, I don't even know if she likes audiobooks. I also like audiobooks. I don't know if I mentioned too, um, just because I love to hear the sounds of different voices and, and maybe that reader's theater experience back in, in graduate school. Um, but I, I haven't done as much with that lately. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I have this sister-in-law who now has, uh, her brother got married to someone from, who immigrated, her, her family, her parents immigrated from Ecuador. So uh, her niece and nephew speak seamlessly three languages in the wow. home. They speak English, Spanish, and Lao. And they are fluent in all three languages. And they've spoken these languages from, you know, from birth in the home, you know. So uh, it's just beautiful to see the communication that happens and um, the love of, of other cultures and the respect for other cultures that happens when you also um, have another language, I think, as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And how's your, uh, your French language journey going? It's going. I, so I had a, a moment in that elementary experience at, and as a Montessori child where we had a guest star, I don't know if it was even maybe a month, a uh, woman who came in and she, she did a little bit of French, you know, kind of drop in with elementary children. And we learned colors and we learned days of the week and, you know, that kind of thing. But I think I just taught myself the alphabet and I started singing the French alphabet in the same tune as the English alphabet. And that started me on my, I want to learn this language. So every chance I get, I would just sign up for French class. I did it in high school. I did it in college. And then I got to the point where I think I tested out and I lost a little interest. And so now I've regained that um, because my sister has traveled the world and has lived in French speaking countries. And so she's now fluent in French and she's learning a few other languages as well. Uh, Portuguese being one of them and a couple of the local languages in Senegal where she lives. So um, I want to be able to talk with my friends and family that are French speaking now. And so I'm really motivated to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, well, those were all of my questions. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share about your work as a Montessori guide or as a librarian or anything else? For, for me, helping help the child help themselves, I guess that, that thinking and that notion within Montessori, I believe that's really what I love about being a librarian is that I love to help people find the answer for themselves and yeah. be that little bit, provide that little bit of assistance. So like traditional teaching just wasn't really where I was inspired. It was really motivation to aid that person or that child in being their own teacher and their own guide. And so I think that's really really special. It's really an honor. And it's so much more, I feel, fulfilling than anything that I could have imagined, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. 
Yeah. I love that. You're, the children in your class are very lucky to have you Aww. as their guide. I'm lucky to have them showing me the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Ayana. Thank this you for having me. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah. Yes, you too. Thank you again to Ayana for joining me for this conversation. You can find links to the children's books and resources that Ayana mentioned in the episode description. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori, and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you're interested in an extra episode each month on a topic related to language acquisition in young children, you can join the Patreon community. You'll find the link to that in the episode description as well. Otherwise, if you enjoyed this episode, a wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.